When, uh, when, when Keanu Reeves comes up to you and goes, dude, a little bit of effort, you know you're a problem as a leading man. Radio Drome. It's another episode of Radio Drome, and you know what? I do this for the art of it. I can't speak for Cecil T. I certainly do it for the art of it as well. I think Skidmark Jowski, who showed up really late tonight, that's why we're running behind. I think Skidmark here, he does it just for the commerce, right? I do it for the, the promo at adamneve.com because if you go there and use the code No, no, drone, no, you stop. Cecil has to do it. He's <laughs> still his, he's gimped it up before. He still has to do it right without gimping it up. I did, I was like I was like, oh shit, I practiced for nothing. Go to adamneve.com and use the promo code DROME to get 50% off a single item, free shipping in the US, three free DVDs, and a free mystery gift. See, it's not that hard to remember, is it? I wrote it down. Of course you did. <laughs> so as you can hear cecil's here skid mark is here that's the new name i'm giving you because like i said you showed up late i was two freaking minutes late and then two i said i'll minutes, be there in a two minute freaking minutes so tonight's topic is going to be art versus commerce at what point do you cease being and i know i'm being elitist with this a filmmaker and just start being a workman that's just making product before we get into any specific examples what is your definition of when that shift takes place? Um, I would say when you're just at a point where you're churning out product, like there's no real thought process behind it. It's like you're just making this simply because you know that it'll turn a profit. Yeah, it's when you make the conscious decision of, I want money. I like money more than art, so I'm just going to make money. So a talking cat it is. We'll be getting to Dakota. Don't jump ahead. Do you think it's something when even money is not necessarily involved with like Toby Hooper with making the crocodile movies and these new crap direct-to-video movies that even he says are crap, but he doesn't care? He doesn't really even care what the final product is anymore. He just loves being on a movie set and directing movies. Is he still a filmmaker when he's just, I just want to make movies. I don't even care if they're any good. I just like directing. Well, he's still a filmmaker in the, the dictionary. He is making film. Well, it's not even a film. It's, it's on digital for video. He's making a movie. So in the literal dictionary definition, it's a filmmaker. And the artistic recognized definition? No, not really. Uh, I don't know. I mean, to, to me, even though uh, he's not making anything particularly worthwhile just making it for the love of making it so he's not looking to turn a profit he's not looking to win oscars he's just making movies because he really enjoys doing it to me i think that's a little bit more genuine i think that that is definitely more leaning on the art side of things because he's doing something that he loves and he doesn't really care about what happens afterwards but he also doesn't even care if it's any good <sighs> see that's where it's tough you know i mean I'm sure to a certain, he might, I mean, that's a soundbite that he might have just thrown out there. I'm sure to a certain degree, he's got to at least want to make something halfway decent. I mean, he's not, 
Either that or maybe he's just Ed Wood about it, where he's just, you know, cut, print, perfect. You know, he doesn't care. He thinks that everything is going to turn out great. Is that more naive than anything else then? Because, I mean, because, I mean, this is the same guy that made Life Force on a 160 day shooting schedule, which is just monstrous even today, let alone for the 80s. That it's the same guy that after two takes, good enough. Maybe maybe part of the passion is gone. I mean, uh, maybe he likes doing things on a smaller scale because there's less pressure and he just kind of wants to to do something. I mean, uh, maybe he's at a point in his career where it's a hobby that he gets paid for. I can kind of see that in the Toby Hooper case. But then you've got people, Alex, let's talk about David Dakota. David Dakota, it's it I watched an old documentary from 1990 just last night called Shock Cinema, and it has I think the interview is from like 88, 89 because he mentions a movie he just finished that came out around that time. So I think it was a relatively older interview even then. And he was so hungry and eager to put out good product. And like he he was saying that it's so hard to make a good movie on these low budgets. And then you look at the David Dakota today and it's clear that he doesn't care one bit about the product that he's putting out, just that it's out. When do you think David Dakota folded and said, it's all about commerce for me now? Actually, I think for Dakota, it was always about commerce because he learned under Corman and Band, who are both always about commerce. But even with both of them, there was a certain level of quality that they demanded. You know, Corman, is, in his book, he mentions numerous times how certain directors he would step in and take over directing their movie when they were not doing it good enough. Not fast enough, but good enough. They even had a certain level of quality they would not dip below. Okay, I'm going to say that for David Dakota, it came in 1996. No, 95, when he directed Prehysteria 3. No, because right before that, he did Puppet Master 3, which is great. Beach Babes from Beyond sounds fun. I've seen that one. It's not bad. Test Tube Teens from the year 2000, I remember saying. And then after that is Prehysteria 3. And uh, let's give a little background on David Dakota for what he is now. David Dakota makes movies like A Talking Cat, A Halloween Puppy, Santa's Christmas Time Village, or whatever the hell that new one is that's coming out. Oh, he and does his, his, his Gay Interest 1313 series. He, he's got those. But the reason that we're saying that he has just given up, it's this all this stuff is clearly done in one take. It's done with the onset audio all hollow and tinny because they're they're doing it in a large room they all use the exact same set for every movie which is dakota's real life house you can see like in a talking cat the laser pointer that they're using to have the cat do what they want there's a couple of shots where you can see the stage hands throwing the cat into the scene that it's clear quality has no meaning in the movies he's putting out now it's just get it out on time, it'll go into the red box and we make money. That is what that is where I see David Dakota now. He doesn't care. And I've looked at some of the budgets. They're not as small as you would think, because one of his defenders came up to me and said, dude, he's working on minuscule budgets to put out a full film. And I'm like, yeah. And you go back, even adjusting for inflation, look at what Charles Band and Corman were able to do 
on the same equal budgets adjusting for inflation, they were able to put out movies with more special effects, with ADR, with multiple takes, with larger names, and with multiple locations. So that says to me, lazy, incompetent, I don't care filmmaking, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. I'm a defender to an extent where I enjoy watching his I don't give a fuck movies, but I'm not going to say, oh no, he's still making art because he's not. Uh, it is a shame because his old stuff, it was good. I mean, he, he definitely knew how to like squeeze a lot out of a very little budget. I mean, I'm a, a fan of, you know, Creepazoids and Sorority Babes and the Slime Bolarama. And uh, didn't he also do Robot Ninja or was that somebody else? Um, I don't think he did Robot Ninja. Yeah, I th- I'm I'm pretty sure that was somebody else. I'm not 100, percent but I'm pretty sure that, that was somebody else. Because in that Shock Cinema documentary, he talks about how one of the one of the movies he did, and I thought it was Robot Ninja, but I could be wrong, was so ultra gory he couldn't believe that they got all the great special effects that they did for as little money as they did. Again, showing he knew how to use a budget back then. Yeah, he really knew how to stretch it and just do things and and shoot them well. I mean, I I enjoyed. I mean, uh, I think even I, I don't think that he crapped out with the prehistoria or prehistoria three because after that, I mean, he still made the Killer Eye. Uh, he still made Retro Puppet Master. I mean, he made entertainingly low budget movies. I think it really wasn't until he started getting you know a little bit later in the two thousands. Uh, I don't want to say it was specifically the 1313 movies, but I don't know, maybe like a talking cat. Well, a talking cat. Uh, when I mean, that was relatively recent, wasn't it? That was it? like that last was year. 2000, I think that yeah. was 2012 at least. Yeah, that was 2012 or 2013. So I think that maybe like 2011 or so is when he just completely stopped caring. But it was weird because I saw an interview with him, famous movie trailers and he was talking with such passion. He's like, oh, this movie was so good. And you could see this, you know, all the effects that went into this. And it was like you're listening to somebody who genuinely loved movies. But then you go and you watch, you know, a talking cat or a talking pony. And it's like this looks like it was made by somebody who, you know, just happened to get a ca- you know a camcorder for the first time and decided to make a movie. I mean, with with the cost of digital now being as cheap as it is you know relatively speaking you could make movies with good audio and good quality video that are digital and then just have them go direct to video and have them be really cheap but still turn out something that's half decent so i don't understand why maybe the the look of it like just looking that bad is just part of the charm of it about he's just like well i don't give a crap we're just going to put this out and it's going to piss people off, but they're going to rent it anyway. So he's definitely doing it because it's a job. He's not doing it for the art. He's not doing it. Uh, he's, he's doing it basically to make enough money to make another piece of crap. Well, then do you think that, that someone like Fred Olin Ray is on the same boat? They used to be both workmen and artists at the same time. You know, Fred Olin Ray made all these great movies like Slave Girls from Beyond Infinity and all that. and they were actual movies and he was trying just to make something for the marketplace. Whereas now Fred Olin Ray makes whatever is popular. That's all he looks for is what will make money. He doesn't care whether it's even any good back in the nineties. I I can't quote it exactly because I don't have it in the magazine in front of me, but he was talking about how all these great exploitation filmmakers tried all these really unique 
things in the 70s and they made these great movies and then he finished it up with but they didn't make any money did they like his point was you only make a movie if you think you're going to make money you know like it was almost alien that you should try to make art that you should have something to say that you should try to make a point to him it seemed to be i'm making this because it's commercial and that's the reason i'm making this well fred olin ray still does really exploitation i mean all exploitation was was cashing in on trends and he still does that i mean super shark i loved that was a couple years ago from fred olin ray i mean his, his are sexier than dakota's and i still have a lot of fun with fred olin ray's movies like he's still trying to make exploitation but he's exploiting really popular things and having fun with it what about what about that thing about it doesn't, you know, that, but they didn't make any money, so what was the point? Well, they didn't make any money. He's making money because, A, he's exploiting the right things at the right time, and marketing. It's all about the title, too. Uh, it's it's kind of funny you bring up Fred Olin Ray because I just talked about Cyclone. That's and... I, I, Honestly, your Cyclone review is what made me think of this as for this topic. I mean, I guess that's like a lot of things. He had a lot of passion back in the early days because he was younger and he put out really cool, fun, low budget action and well, mostly action and horror films. And then once that market kind of dried up, he transitioned over into the softcore films for Cinemax. And now that that is kind of going away, he's transitioning to the next easy money thing, which is the, uh, you know, uh, direct to cable family films. I, I kind of wish he would go back. Uh, it's just it's an easier market because it's like, all right, well, we can go crank out some piece of crap for ABC family. We can shoot it in like a week or two. And, you know, it's it's just doing it for the sake of doing it. So but the difference, though, with between him and somebody like Dakota is when you watch a Fred Olin Ray movie, even a bad Fred Olin Ray movie, there's still a level of quality to it. I mean, the shots, you know, it's it's not Kubrick, but it's clearly somebody who knows his way around a camera and is doing things well. And the audio is good and everything's framed properly. So which is kind of least... surprising considering considering his quote, I'm much quicker to take the first take nowadays than I was in the 90s. Well, I mean, I guess it's it's kind of comes with somebody who's been doing this long enough. You know, he just automatically knows. All right. Well, well, we'll set this shot up. And to be fair, a lot of his movies, you know, the Dirty Blondes bikini time machine they're shot in a lot of the same locations so it's just all right set this camera up here because we know we've got this shot have the two girls stand here and then they go off and they start doing stuff so i mean at least he's he's got that down to a semi-science he unfortunately has transitioned over into doing it just simply for the commerce but i think that i mean he he does have the potential to actually make genuinely good movies he just chooses not to You've got his son making movies now, too. And his son Christopher made the awesome two-headed shark attack. Which was actually much better than I expected. I uh, I really did enjoy that one. Well, then let, let's move from that to the end of it, from the individual filmmakers, to the industry itself, art versus commerce. Obviously, the studios want to make money at any cost. That's kind of their point. But at what point does it get to to being pandering? Because now this just came out. I'm going to read 
Joe Carnahan's letter to the president of MGM. Okay, and I'm going to read it exactly what he wrote about Joe Carnahan being replaced off of the new Death Wish movie, Gerardo Nanja, a first-time English language director, okay? Quoting Joe Carnahan. When was this letter? This was just released yesterday. Okay, so they are making a new Death Wish movie? Just shut up. They've been wanting to do a new Death Wish for a while. Oh, okay, at least it's not Stallone. Stallone's been in development of this for about two years now, but this doesn't involve Stallone at all. What, what, what basically happened was Joe Carnahan has been replaced the studio is pushing for Bruce Willis to star in this. And if you ever listen to any of Kevin Smith's stand-up, you find out that on Cop Out, he found out firsthand Bruce Willis is a real dickhole, and Bruce Willis takes over the set. That Bruce Willis calls the shots, and you just, as a director, you figure out where to put the camera. So, quoting Joe Carnahan, You had a potential Oscar-winning film with maybe the best script in Hollywood, but because you're a coward and a dumb c- you now have an untested second-time director and an arrogant, lazy, aging action star that will run that poor kid into the ground. Good luck, asshole. You're a spineless, gutless turd who doesn't belong in the business. Enjoy your run as, quote, studio head Glickman. It's going to be a short one. Fuck you, Joe Carnahan, unquote. Right there, he's saying, you care about getting a bankable star in here, even if he's totally wrong for this, but all you want is a bankable star and a director that you can control and you don't give a shit what this Death Wish remake turns out to. What do you think of that in the whole art versus commerce angle? Major, major respect to the guy for having the balls to put something like that together. Because, you know, in Hollywood, everybody is so terrified to burn any bridges. And for him to throw something like that out there that's that filled with bile, you know that he had the passion to do this. He was like, also he, pissed off, you can tell. Oh, God. Well, he called him a cunt. You know, <laughs> I mean, that's in, in the U.S. at least. That's the freaking atomic bomb. So he he really wanted to do this. And I'm curious to see, you know, what this script was like, because I know it's this has been floating around Hollywood for a for as long as I can remember. They've been trying to get this made, you know, because of the whole remake, everything. I'm curious to see uh, what the whole thing, you know, what it what it was like. But but Bruce Willis. I mean, he is aging and he might fit in well with the role, but uh, I don't know. Part of the, the beauty of it with the original, at least, was Charles Bronson was was kind of not the guy you would expect to be this vicious, which is what made the originals work so well. You know, he was this small little Jewish guy who just went on a rampage and was killing, you know, all the criminals that, you know, killed his family. And uh, that's another thing, too. You know, it's like uh, we're going to have another Bruce Willis as a cop, as an aging cop, especially now that he's been doing the Die Hard movies. I mean, granted, this I don't know if it's going to have as much action in it, but I'm getting off topic. Basically, major kudos to this guy for having the balls to say that. I hope it doesn't completely screw his career over, but he absolutely was right. They got rid of him and they brought in a director who will cower and listen to whatever the studio says because he, more importantly you know, to what Bruce Willis says or to what Bruce Willis says exactly. And more than likely the movie will be cookie cutter horseshit. It's a lot like um, David Fincher on the set of alien three, what he shouted into the mic. Yeah. It, it's amazing that 20th century Fox is the largest movie studio in the world when it's run by absolute fucking morons. Not on him for standing up like that, but I don't believe it's that 
it's going to change anything. The studios have always been in money, and that's how they've been for decades. That's not going to change. They will find somebody else, not a problem, and that'll be that. But you know, that they'll all... look at his letter and say, okay, well, we'll, we'll just find somebody else then. But, but doesn't that, that always happen where th- they would rather have the bankable star, even if they're totally wrong for the part, they, they, they need a name that, that somehow the studios look down on us, the film viewers. We, we cannot like a movie that has a great story or beautiful direction unless Sandra Bullock is in it, unless Sylvester Stallone is in it, unless Bruce Willis is in it. That it doesn't matter if they're right for the part. You just you have to have a bankable name in your movie. What does that say about how they look at you, the audience? They've always done that, you know. You list Sandra Bullock and Bruce Willis, but before then it was unless it has John Crawford or Betty Davis. That's how they've always been. Well, that's why I love when a movie like Paranormal Activity comes along. It's a movie that costs next to no money, and it's got two people in it that are essentially nobodies. And the whole film takes place in one location, and it goes on and makes tons of money and they're completely baffled by this and they can't seem to understand that you know what maybe once in a while people want something different we don't want the exact same movie time after time after time uh we don't want the same stars and the same people all the time now i'm gonna interrupt you on that but i think the audience has shown them that that's not true Look at like Halloween 3 or Friday the 13th Part 5 or whenever a franchise tries to break away from what it was, the audience nine times out of ten rejects that. The studio says, just go back to what you were doing before. I'm not talking franchises because people feel like they have something invested. So whenever there's something changing with that, people are, of course, going to fight back against it. Uh, I'm talking more about like new original properties where uh, it's something that hasn't been done before or it's something that has been done before, but it's being done in a different way. You know, for example, a different action movie or horror film or whatnot. Uh, if you have something and you incorporate new characters in it and it, it in that case, it's really more about the story and about, you know, whether or not it works, whether or not it's a good movie. There's so many movies that uh, they are really cool, and then uh, they go to they go to release them, and then they go to change them in some particular way. Now, I love the original Paranormal Activity, but I saw it roughly about six months, maybe six months, eight months before it got released in the theaters, and I saw it with the original ending. With the original ending, it's unbelievable. It was amazing. I freaking love the movie. And then when it finally hit theaters, they didn't like the original ending they wanted something that they could that was more spooky so spielberg who had bought the rights to it to get it distributed originally they were going to reach they were going to remake the movie but there was such a backlash and people loved the I, film. I i remember that i remember reading about that yeah where they were going to remake it and they decided well you know instead of remaking it let's just release it as it is but let's reshoot the ending and they did the spielberg suggested ending which completely went against the entire rest of the film and it sucked the the theatrical released ending of the film absolutely sucked in comparison to the original ending so that right there showed that the studio liked it and they realized that they had something good but they still had to kind of you know tinker with it and change it to make it a little bit more 
marketable towards people. So, But doesn't that happen all the time, especially with endings, where the test audiences might not like an ending? Look at, like, The Descent. Look at how Europeans got the real ending, whereas us Americans got the happy ending where she survives at the end. <sighs> and it's a shame because The Descent is an incredible film, and the ending for that is so... The amazing. real ending. The, the real ending for that is amazingly heartbreaking. And then the thing that kind of bugged me about that, I that was another one that I had imported because it was already out in Europe on DVD before it finally hit American theaters. And uh, I had seen it as it was and thought it was brilliant. And uh, I had uh, some relatives who had seen it in the theater that weekend. And they were talking about it. And I was like, oh, you saw the crap ending. And they're like, well, what's, oh, what's the real ending? So I popped the DVD in and I showed them the real ending. And they were like, we don't get it. And um, and that's when I realized, oh my God, like financially the studios made the right decision. Financially, they made the right decision because people are dumb. <laughs> it's depressing. It even goes to like one hour photo. Have you ever seen the work print? What the original ending of one hour photo was when that was shown to test audiences? Again, they didn't get it, Cecil. In the original ending. Remember how the cop, I, I think it was Eric LaSalle, is laying out the photographs of the sex acts he was making the couple do in the room at knife point? Mm -hmm. In the original ending, all of the photographs are just like of the sink, of the toilet, of the mirror, of the window. And it was show, and he was looking at them, Robin Williams, so longingly that he was so far gone, he thought he did all that stuff, but he didn't. And the audience, test audiences were, I don't get it. I don't get it. Quiet, you. <laughs> they, no, they have. I don't get it. The, 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 it was more exciting with actual photographs of sex scenes. Like if they showed him a picture of a sink that he took, I'd have been like, ah, this is bullshit. Yeah, but you're the guy that also thought the Blair Witch changed the tapes. But yeah, the first time I watched it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's a shame. Uh, it is a, a recurring trend where... You know, they do uh, change the ending or they take the film away from the director because they don't like the, the way that it's going or uh, something happens like the uh, one of the producers ends up losing a ton of the money uh, gambling and then they have to cut the budget of the film and then consequently, you know, the movie suffers. So uh, it, it, it's sad because they are looking at it strictly from a money perspective and they want to, you know, get a product out and they want to get money back. And by changing the ending and by changing different facets of the film, re-editing it like they did with The Blair Witch 2, where they've completely, they, all they did was piss people off. But they did it because they thought that that's what people wanted. It, it, it sucks. It's really frustrating, especially when you see movies the way that they're intended to be. And then you see the way that most people think of them. And then you go and you defend them to people. No, no, no. If you see it this way, ah, that movie sucks. You know, you can't argue with that. Sometimes I really do like seeing a movie that was the director's intent, even if that intent was total crap. And the studio was like, hey, your movie sucks. Let's change the ending to something a bit more palatable. I do like seeing the, the director's intent, you know, and it does happen that they change endings all the time. So it's good to have that available you know, for people, regardless of what the studio's end decision was with the ending, it's good to have that original ending always available. To piggyback on that, Paranormal Activity, 
it has the theatrical ending, it has the alternate ending, but the DVD does not include the original ending. But then you've also got, let's go back to Stallone, the original ending of First Blood, where Rambo commits suicide rather than go to prison. The reason the studio cut it, because Stallone wanted it, the reason the studio cut it was people want an underdog that redeems himself. They want some kind of redemption. And that was seen as, not their term, I'm emphasis mine, a bitch way out. Yet that logically is where that and that story had to end. Am I, am I right or wrong? I don't know. I like the ending to First Blood, where he goes to jail for what he did. Uh, it's, it's a tough one because, yeah, I do like... I do like the ending that they, they gave, and that that's a case where I'd be curious to see, you know, both sides of it, to see how, because did... The cause alternate never, ending's on the DVD. Is it? Okay. Yeah, yeah the I'm suicide to, ending's on the DVD. Okay, I'm going to have to dig that out, because uh, I, 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 I haven't seen it, but um, I I don't know. Um, that's, that's a tough one, because I haven't seen it, so I, I can't say. Okay, well then, what about when marketing takes over during the production of a movie. For instance, and I'll be talking about both films, the G.I. Joe live-action movies. For instance, the first one. Cecil, I know you're a big cartoon fan from the 80s. What is G.I. Joe's catchphrase? A real American hero. Right. You'll notice the... the more you know. I'm gonna fucking hit you with my dick. <laughs> a real American hero, exactly. Well, because... When Paramount took over, when their marketing department got involved, Steven Summers hadn't even started shooting the film yet. And they said, we have to multicultural the team up, and you cannot call them G.I. Joe a real American hero. They're just G.I. Joe a real hero. Because they said the whole American thing won't play in foreign territories. So you, they cannot be an American-centric team because we're looking at international sales here. So... We will piss on what the what the base of the franchise is because we want this to sell in Romania and Russia and China. Well, I think if they were paying him to make this movie and they wanted to make that money back through international sales, they should have told him that up front instead of like, you know, halfway through shooting. Oh, by the way, it needs to be international. They should have told up, up front, we need this to be international. It's our money. So you're going to do it. Well, you also it also deals with the multiculturalism. G.I. Joe was always a pretty multicultural team, but look at that oft-stalled Akira remake. In the original in the original manga, in the original anime, and in the original script that was written, all of the characters are Japanese, Japanese, or because they were Americanizing it, just straight. You know, they were a white gang because you don't usually have multicultural gangs, and they're a street gang. Well, Paramount again, Paramount decided, no, 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 you have to have a woman in the gang, and you have to have a black on the gang, and you have to have an Indian in the gang, and there has to be an Asian in the gang, and we have to represent all cultures, and I'm quoting here, it makes it easier to sell overseas. Considering that the only characters in Akira that matter are, you know, Canada, and Tetsuo, Kanada, whatever. Depends on what cut you're using, but yes. Yeah, I, I don't even see why the other people in the gang even matter. I don't even remember them. Marketing in general are just run by complete idiots who they don't look at the product itself. They look at 
idiotic, stupid things that make no sense whatsoever. Going back to the Blair Witch Project 2, this was one where they had the film about 90% shot and the marketing team went to Erlinger and was like, hey, um, we don't want you to use the characters' real names in the movie. And it's like, we already shot almost the entire film. We can't go back and change their names in post. That's ridiculous. Going along the lines of that, where somebody decided that uh, they couldn't sell G.I. Joe as a real American hero overseas, even though G.I. Joe has been a real American hero since it was invented. Since the 60s. Since the freaking 60s. It's it's just it's absurd. It's it's ridiculous because they're they're not even giving it a chance. Like they're just they automatically assume that it's not going to do well. By, by changing a fundamental thing about the film. And uh, it just goes to show that they have, uh, in the end, they don't have faith in the product to kind of stand on its own. They just come up with these ridiculous things that they have to alter, and then uh, it, it just changes the product. And in the end, I, I still enjoyed the two G.I. Joe movies, and I know, I know, I know. But I mean, I wasn't, I wasn't looking at them as anything other than big explodey fests and they were for what they were i enjoyed them but you know would something like calling them a real american hero have changed that much about it we we don't know but i would have rather have had it stay closer to the roots than have some marketing idiot change it for the sake of changing it what about then with gi joe's sequel with the added channing tatum that channing tatum was pretty much the biggest complaint about the first film was how stiff and lifeless his performance was, how Duke had no personality whatsoever, but test audiences, because of course test audiences are absolutely indicative of the American pu- viewing public, test audiences liked him. So they didn't like the fact that he got killed at the originally at the beginning of G.I. Joe 2. So the studio... Let's work Tatum back into this. Let's add more Tatum because test audiences like him, even though every critic, every DVD review, every movie review, every blog post hated him. That's not indicative of the American viewing public. No, no, no. These hundred people we randomly got at a mall for a free movie. That's indicative of the American people. It was the Channing Tatum Memorial Mall, too. All right. That's your piece. Cecil? (laughs) I oh, can... come on. I can't. <laughs> yeah, give him a little bit more than that. No, I did have a point to make, but I got distracted by Channing Tatum. Um, about the international stuff, you bring up Akira and G.I. Joe, but what about Iron Man 3, where they actually shot separate scenes and changed the entire tone of the movie for Chinese distribution? Looper did as well. Looper had scenes that were shot specifically for the Chinese version of the film. Where they have Iron Man, like, product placement for some Chinese beverage and like he stops in China and when he gets his surgery at the end it's this amazing Chinese doctor giving thumbs up completely changes the whole movie um I'll get into Channing Tatum in a minute but I'll go along with uh with what Alex said they did a similar thing with Johnny Mnemonic in Japan the movie had a completely different cut it had about 15 Takahashi had a ton of extra screen time Yes, his character was much bigger, and the movie in general, that was the movie that should have been released. The, the, it flowed better in the Japanese version. 
Oh, it absolutely I, did. I, I like Johnny Mnemonic quite a bit. I probably shouldn't, but I do. No, it's a great movie. It's a great, the Japanese version is a great movie. I, the, I, I even like the American cut, but I, I know what you mean. Mm-hmm. That's what I'm saying. The, the American version, I still think is a good movie, but, and I, and I'm so sick. Oh, Johnny Moronic. Oh yeah, we get it. But the Japanese cut, that was the movie that should have been. I mean, they explained Dolph Lundgren more. They went into a little bit more with Keanu's back history. It's just overall better movie. But of course, that was not the version that we got. We got the one that was good, but it didn't make as much sense. The Japanese version, it had the complete story and it made sense. But going to Channing Tatum, I can't stand Channing Tatum. I, he's somebody who you along do, with most of the actual film critics in America. You know, if, if that's the case, a lot of people like Channing Tatum, a lot of people who I work with, the, I, I can't tell you how many people were telling me that I had to watch the Channing Tatum doing the split that Jean-Claude Van Damme did. And it was the most horrendously unfunny thing I'd seen this week. It's, oh, he he can't do it, and he fell down, and he hurt his balls. Oh, that's not even a little bit funny. I, I don't get, he's he's not charming, he's a terrible actor, he's completely wooden, and he's just, he's just an, uh, to me, just seems like an unlikable guy. When, uh, when, when Keanu Reeves comes up to you and goes, dude, a little bit of effort, you know you're a problem as a leading man. Yeah, dude, emote. <laughs> like, yeah, it's he's so bad. In every movie I've seen him in, he delivers the same bland, wooden performance. There's no difference between character to character. And the thing that really got me, and I'm surprised that they even allowed this, with G.I. Joe 2, they killed off his character relatively early. And then, like you said, originally it was, it was earlier than it ends up being in the film because oh, people yeah. wanted more of him. And so they shoehorned in an additional 10 minutes of footage and they delayed the film almost a freaking year to get the additional footage in there. And it really it added very, very little because it was an it was a scene of him with the uh, actually it was two scenes of him with the rock. And it kind of went to show how much better an actor The Rock was over this guy. Yeah, it's just they completely delayed the film and it had to piss off Hasbro because they already had the action figures and everything on the shelves. And it was like, oh, the movie's going to be delayed. It was it was a stupid movie or a stupid movie. It was a stupid move for them to do. And I am amazed that I would be amazed if somebody didn't completely get fired. Well, then what about the people that are responsible for when you see a movie that just you go, oh, my God, this is this awful script. And I'm talking big budget at this point. And, and, you know, you've got a director that clearly doesn't know what they're doing or is in way over their head. I'm not going to name who this is because I, I know the person in real life and they're a friend of mine. But a certain writer I know said it's all about the money. That when you're hired to say, just for example, to write Nightmare on Elm Street Part 47, you just do the work, take the money, and let them deal with whether the script is any good or not. And I think that is the definition of everything that is wrong with Hollywood. I'm just going to do my job. It's now your job to figure out what to do with it. My thoughts are, if you don't like the studio system, don't work with the studio system. 
problem but, is they but, have but, all but the, the money. Thing is, right, but the thing is, this, this writer I'm referring to said, if they're going to offer me $40,000 to write Nightmare on Elm Street Part 47, Freddy Goes to the Beach, I'm not going to say no, even though I know there's no way the end product will be any good. So where does that fall in that line? Well, it depends on what you're going to do with that $40,000. John Sayles, he sold off screenplays to finance his own directorial career. And he made some great movies as a director, but he also had to sell a lot of stuff to studios and let them do whatever they wanted with those scripts So That's in order the same to do thing. it. That's the same thing Orson Welles did. He did all those movies you know, in the 70s and 80s when he was relatively unhirable. All those voiceovers for the documentaries and all these crap movies – all because he was trying to use the money to get his projects off the ground. But doesn't that still kind of make you a sellout, even if you're doing it for the right reason? Have we, We've all worked jobs that we've hated to work, but we stayed there because we needed the money to do what we wanted to do. And it's the same thing. It's still a job. It's a job with more zeros in the paycheck, but it's still the same thing. Well, I need this money to do my thing. So, yeah, I'll do it because I need the money. They're trying to do this as a means to an end. It's like, all right, well, I'm going to write this piece of crap to try to get the money to do something I really want to do. I know you don't like him, but uh, you've got Robert Rodriguez who did, uh, I think. No, 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 no. Don't put words in my mouth. I think Robert Rodriguez is a fine filmmaker. Strangely enough, I don't like most of his films. I think he is a good filmmaker. I just don't like the end products, as weird as that might sound. Okay. Well, that's understandable. I Shark Boy and Lava Girl, I I was not a fan. Like, I didn't think it was terrible. I thought it was, you know, it was a kid's movie. And I will give him credit for that because you know what? He made that movie for his kids. And how many of us would like to, you know, I don't have kids, but if I did and, you know, they came up with an idea and I had the capability of making them a movie, why the hell not? But it also um, comes down to, like, Dennis Leary. Yeah, he's I've straight made... on record with Operation Dumbo Drop. He's he's like, one of my kids needed braces. Disney's hiring me to do a movie. All right. Michael Madsen, I don't think he still has it, but I know he used to have a list on his website where it had uh, each of his movies that he did, and then next to it was the reason why he did it. You know, oh, I owe child support money. Uh, I did this because I owed money to this guy or I, you know, I owed a favor. And that is what that is what Bruce Campbell calls alimony movies. <laughs> you know, I can't make the alimony payment this month. Oh, hey, slugs from beyond four is shooting. Yeah. OK. <laughs> Alien apocalypse. Sure. Betsy Palmer did Friday the 13th because she needed get a car. A car. Yeah. You've also got ones. Joe Bob Briggs in one of his books said. It's funny how quickly the artist abandons their ideals that he's like, you know, he he personally saw all these people come out of film school, like be the next Mastrioni. And, you know, I'm going to be the next Fellini within a month. They're going swamp babes versus lizard monsters. Part 70. Yeah, I'll do that. It's money. And and he's like, you it's it's it, he was kind of ashamed at how quickly You'll abandon your ideals just to work in Hollywood. Is that good or bad? Well, I mean, it's part of the part of the business. Unfortunately, you got to get your foot in the door somewhere. I mean, look at how many great directors start in doing low budget horror films, and that's kind of where they cut their teeth. And they learned 
uh, actors and actresses as well have done little tiny productions and that was kind of where they honed their craft and they since moved on to, to bigger and better things. So it's kind of like, uh, I guess I attribute it to like, you know, you're in high school and you're working at Burger King and then you graduate, you know, you graduate high school and you go off to college and then you go and you get a better job and you kind of move up the ladder. So it's, it's a similar thing. Uh, it's, it's sad that they have to go that route, but I think that there's a lot of things that can be learned there by doing that. You're, you're getting a job. What about when it comes to just straight out, literally what this topic is, art versus commerce, that, okay, you can make this movie any way you want it, but you've only got a budget of, say, $500,000, and you've got, you can afford no name actors, but you've got 100% control. Or you can be our hatchet man on this, and you'll do what we say, and you've got a $20 million budget and access to Bruce Willis and Christopher Walken, but we are pulling your strings. To me, I would say, screw you, I'll do my own thing. I don't want to be your puppet. Is that idealistic of me, or even naively idealistic? Or, screw it, 20 million bucks, and I get all these big stars, I'm going to be in 400 theaters? Yeah! It's idealistic of you. I mean, if you're just going to say, oh, no, I'm never going to sell myself out, you know, I'm never going to do anything for the money, then you'll never have money to do what you want. Sometimes you make compromises to get the money to achieve your dreams. But then are the dreams themselves not compromised? No, they're not, because you're still achieving the dream the way you wanted to. You got the money to achieve your dream. By selling your soul. No. It's like whenever Harlan Ellison in the 70s would go into a pitch meeting, he made sure to always wear the same T-shirt. It said, you cannot buy my soul, but you can rent my talent. I I personally would go more the small budget route because it's like, okay, uh, you're going to give me half a million dollars, let's say, to make the movie that I want to make, and you're not going to interfere. Uh, yes, uh, I would absolutely do that. Because, then, uh, I mean, how many nightmare stories have you heard where there are these larger production films and then you have a Bruce Willis or somebody that comes in and just takes over. But guess what? Yeah, you're not really doing what you want to do. This guy's got it. And then the problem is with that is at the end of the day, when the film comes out, it has your name attached as the director. And then if the movie completely sucks, well, guess who gets blamed? So if you have full control over it, even though it's a smaller budget, then the movie is going to live or die specifically on your skills if you can do it and make a good movie and it comes out then you're golden and the nice thing about that too is all right let's say you make a movie for a half a million dollars you have a way better chance of actually making your money back because all you have to do is you know have some halfway decent dvd sales Redbox rentals netflix what you know views and whatnot and you know you'll make that back in no time which then will kind of show, all right, well, this guy is profitable on the low end, and maybe you'll be able to continue to kind of continue, or you'll be able to continue doing. To me, again, I'm naively idealistic. I have to look at myself in the mirror every day. I can't, I couldn't look at myself if all I'm doing is making your vision. I want to make mine. Yeah, well, I mean, that's that's what you you know, if you're if you're getting a smaller budget, then you're getting the full control over it and you're making the movie that you want to make. You're not making the movie that the studio tells you to make, which a lot of times you'll start making the movie that you think they want you to make. 
Uh, and then they'll come in and they'll add nonsense and they'll change things or they'll cut the budget or they'll do something stupid. And there's always something that kind of gets added that ends up screwing things up. And then the film comes out and people watch it and they say, oh, I really like the movie, but I hated when this happened. And 90% of the time, the basically when this what, happened. Basically what you're talking about, Cecil, is Trio. Basically you're talking about Trio from a Burn Hollywood Burn and Alan Smithy film. Because remember there was even that quote. The only reason we hired Smithy was he was easily controllable. I don't want to be that guy. I don't want to be the easily controllable guy. I want to be the crazy maniac that Michael Wincott ended up being in what just happened. I personally just want to be the budget filmmaker that's making, you know, cool films that I enjoy and that maybe a small group of people enjoy. I mean, look at, you know, Kevin Smith. Kevin Smith started, sold all, you know, sold his comic collection to make clerks moved on and has since, you know, kind of built his own production company and now makes the, the films that he wants to make. Even if like cop out, they suck. <sighs> well, cop out, cop out is the one, like I can even watch. I didn't Jersey like Zack and Miri, but I hated cop out. Oh, Zach and Miri was freaking hysterical. Oh, um, <laughs> I think not an episode goes by where we're not polarized on at least one thing. I can even watch Jersey Girl to a certain degree. Jersey Girl's bad, but Carlin steals every scene he's in. Oh, absolutely. I think that I mean the movie does significantly get better once J Lo dies. It's it's still you know it's sappy and it's like all right, dude, you wanted to make uh, you know kind of a family film and it still had a little bit of that Kevin Smith comedy to it, but it definitely was a lot softer. Cop Out was just complete and utter horseshit. To me, it was an aptly titled film. Yeah, it absolutely was. Although the original title was a a couple of dicks, but the studio let him go with that. Right, but that's why I'm saying what he ended up with kind of described the movie itself. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, it was a combination of Bruce Willis taking over the production and Tracy Morgan being the polar opposite of funny. Well, you need commerce in order to make art. I mean, you need the money in order to make art. And sometimes you have to do a project you'll regret. A lot of actors have done it, a lot of directors have done it, a lot of writers have done it. And sometimes you do have to sell yourself out. Now that's in order to make art. Then you have the people like Dakota that have given up on the artistic end of it and just want to make money. And if that works for them, I have no problem with it. Because, I mean, nobody is saying a talking cat was a piece of art. I mean, Dakota's not out there saying this is the greatest movie ever. I mean, he's like, he made it for the money. Good for him. It's still a business. Uh, movie making still a business. And sometimes art doesn't pay the bills. Studios do screw with things way too much. And they should have enough faith in their directors to actually make a good film. Really annoying when they say, okay, here's the film that we've decided on. Here's the director we want to attach to it. And then the director starts. And then for whatever reason, they decide to start meddling with it. And it's annoying because you, you've never heard, I would say the majority of the time, you've never heard of somebody going, you know, this movie was was really bad when the director did it. Thank God the producer stepped in and changed it. Every now and then that happens. But the vast majority of the times, it's the director who was right and the producers who came in and or somebody else involved came in and really screwed things up. So it's it's a shame because... They still do need to make money, and I think they worry too much 
about marketing it and putting the right people in the movies and casting people who are completely wrong for the film to the point of where it ends up hurting the film. So we're, we're kind of stuck in a quandary because they need to make money, but they're going about making money the wrong way. And something is going to have to change in Hollywood before we get an alternate on that. And see, to me, what it comes down to is if all you're doing is marketing to the to what you think the people want, you're not actually marketing. You're pandering. And I think the, the viewers should recognize that. But unfortunately, most of them don't recognize when they're being pandered to. That's how Jersey Shore stayed on the air as long as it did. That's how Duck Dynasty is on the air. That's how Judge Dredd got stuck with a comedic sidekick. That That is how these movies get bad when they arguably get mainstream. Whether well, that's the, snobbish of me or not, it's the truth. Well, they're pandering, but not to you. I mean, Jersey Shore, yeah, I thought it was crap. They were pandering to people that weren't me, though. They were pandering to the people that liked that kind of crap. And that's how they made their money. They didn't make money from me, but they made it from the people that do dig it. Which is sad in and of itself. Where can we find Cecil finally got the Adam and Eve promo right? Yay! You can find me at goodbadflix.com as well as geekjuicemedia.com. Skidmark, where can people contact you? Geekjuicemedia.com. I'm at the same geekjuicemedia as well as 1201beyond.com, 1201beyond at gmail.com. And also, don't forget, you can get Radiodrome t-shirts now at 1201beyond.com. You can get t-shirts for Geek Juice, any of the 1201 shows. We'll be having a good Bad Flicks one. You can you can get the t-shirts, and don't forget, all the shows are also on SoundCloud. So, we're everywhere!
But there's just one problem. Is my cock big enough? Is my brain small enough for you to make me a star? Give me a toot, I'll sell you my soul. Pull my strings and I'll go far. Give me a toot, I'll show you my soul. Pull my strings and I'll go far. Visit 1201beyond.com for more great shows.